On this week in sales, Facebook says buyers are more prepared to buy online. We're going to learn how sales leaders can set a course for less stress. And <laughs> the most epic story of the week that I found, quote, we tried paying everyone the same salary. It failed. End quote. Of course it did. This is This Week in Sales. My name is Will Barron and one half of the show. The other half of the show, the legend Victor Antonio, judged me by the power of the internet. Victor, how is it going, sir? Will, it is going fantastic. Uh, we weren't on last week, but that's okay. We're, we're fired up for this week. We got some great content for the folks. For sure. And we will. I will demonstrate why we weren't on last week at the end of this show. We'll, we'll, have, a, we'll have a friend yeah. uh, of the show come and join us. Um, so yeah, Victor, let's jump into it, mate, because there's a ton to go out here. It's, it's a report from cardealermagazine.co.uk. Facebook research shows that UK customers are more prepared to buy online. And I was flipping and putting this one in in that, yeah, of course, people are more likely to buy online with the amount of lockdowns and everything that we've been through. But they give some numbers here, which I thought was interesting. So of those surveyed, 60% aged between 18 and 39 said they thought buying a car completely online was realistic. Now, a car for most people, right, is the second most expensive purchase that they're ever going to make after a house and a mortgage. So how does that number come across to you, Victor? Is that surprising that... Uh, where we 60% of individuals within that age range said that they would buy a car, their second biggest purchase of their life, completely online. Mm. Well, I'm going to parse the words here a little bit. They thought buying a completely online was realistic. That should be at 100%. Of course, it's realistic, right? So let's go 100% on that one. How many would actually buy online is what I think to try to say 60%. I think that's a good number, Will. I think 60% sounds about right. And my rationale would be is that I mean, think about it. Well, t today, when you look at cars, because of the warranties and everything, I mean, we expect them to work. So it's not like, you know, it was like, you know, when I was younger and you weren't born yet, you know. <laughs> you, you got it before me then. I was going to make that same joke. <laughs> it's called blocking an objection. Yeah. So anyway, so, uh, so you know, back then it was like, you, you didn't know if you were going to get a lemon. That was the big word, right? It might be a lemon. Well, today, I don't think we have that many lemons. And if you do, you just take it right back or swap it out. Sure, sure. And there, there was another part of this article which I thought was genuinely interesting. And this, I guess, this that sets the scene for more to B2B, B2C sales, uh, where there's probably a little bit more of a combative nature between buyer and uh, seller and consumer. Um, I'm quoting again, negotiating was still an important part of the process for a large part of those who were surveyed, with 43% saying it was a thrill-seeking opportunity. B2C buyers want to get thrills from salespeople. I, yeah, the way you said it came out wrong, but I get you. The my Anything father, to get a deal done, Victor, whatever it takes, mate. <laughs> my father-in-law loves to haggle. Yeah. We, we went down to Mexico, and you know it's an item that is so cheaply priced, he will still haggle. But I think it's worth mentioning here, when it comes like to uh, adoption, that CarMax here in the U.S., you know, CarMax is our... You can go buy it, and it's one price, that's it, no negotiation. And I think CarMax kind of broke us in mentally over the years, that you could walk on the lot, no haggling, that's the price, that's it. And maybe this, now you look at Carvana, where you get this almost like a giant you know, vending machine. And so this is moving in a predictable direction, I think. What do you think? hundred percent. So I won't bore the audience. I've definitely talked about this on the This Week in Sales and the Salesman podcast and other people's podcasts as well. I tried to buy, or me and my partner, we tried to buy a Mini from BMW Mini here in Leeds. After test driving it, after owning a Mini prior, after like wanting to kind of literally just jump in there, we knew the price because it was all online, there's BMW finance calculators. The salesperson wouldn't tell us the price. I won't go through the story again. It was ridiculous. So... That was the negotiation experience I had with a, I guess, a traditional car salesperson. Now, my dad, again, I've told this story millions of times again, so I won't go into detail, but my dad bought a car similar to similar scenario that you're outlining there, Victor. We walked in, the sales rep essentially comes over and says, hey, I'm not a sales rep, I'm customer service. I get paid a commission on your feedback at the end of this process. Whether you buy or don't buy, I get a commission based on that. And he let us just go and uh, peruse the cars, go around, take a look at them. And we bought it. No negotiation. The price is the price. And my dad has literally referred 100, maybe 150 grand's worth of business to that place. It's a big national chain um, over the years just because he had such a good experience. And I'm talking about it now again. So there is definitely something to this. Uh, but I, it just made me laugh that people want to, because I'm the same. I want to negotiate, even if I'm oh, not going to get a better price. 
Yeah, even if I'm not going to get a better price, I like it's almost a game at some point. Um, but but let me ask you this thing: Do you feel like that is the same in B two B? Because I don't feel like um, I I will tell you off air in a second, and we probably can announce it within the next couple of weeks, and I'll talk about it on this week in sales as well. But I've just done the biggest deal we've ever done with a a, a leading company for sponsorship. I didn't negotiate anything. I told them the price, and they're like, "Yeah, whatever, fine." So it means the prop the price probably was too cheap in the first place, which is a learning experience for me. But I don't expect them to get the real out of trying to negotiate with me. It's the price is the price in B two B. In my experience, is that your experience as well? Uh no, that's not my experience. B two B, no, the price is not the price. The price is never negotiated till a final, you know, step of the way. Then you have to go deal with purchasing, and purchasing is always purchasing. People, we train salespeople to negotiate. The buyer side has figured this out. Let's send our people to the same courses the salespeople take and then one-up them before they actually get into the conversation. So in, in B2B, complex sales, you get a lot of negotiation. It all happens at the, at, the fr- at the end when everything is pretty much decided. And again, uh, there's some, you know, there's some negotiation, some haggling going on. But it's funny how the product manager, the C-suite people, everybody steps out and says, well, you got to deal with purchasing guy, man. That's, uh, or the CFO. You, you got to deal with them. And so then... It begins again, so it does happen in B two B. Let me let me phrase it slightly differently then. In B two B, and tell me because you may totally disagree with this. Again, in my experience, in B two B, is there might be a negotiation over price, but if we've got price on one end of the scale and the value that we're offering on the other, it, it's a it's a teeter totter. Or if they want less price, it's more than reasonable to say, well, we'll reduce the service, or if you've got more budget, we'll add more service to it, whatever it is. Whereas I find if you're buying a BMW, if you're buying a car. The features are there. The car's in front of you, and people will still try and negotiate on the price just for the sake of negotiating, just so they don't feel like they've been ripped off because they probably feel like there's an opportunity to to claw some cash back, even though they're not exchanging value for cash. It, maybe is that a better way of putting it? Perhaps. Mm-hmm. I think so. I, I, and I'll add one more layer to that: culture. When I'm selling in the U.S., there's less negotiation. When I'm selling in the Latin America, for example, oh, there's negotiation. <laughs> You know what I mean? There is negotiation. So maybe it's it's part cultural as well. So I'll, I'll meet you halfway on that one. Yep, that makes total sense. Okay, uh, what have we got next, Victor? All right, under, let's go under the topic of sales tools and technology. High spot, customer growth surges amid widespread adoption of, here we go again, Will, sales enablement. There's that topic again. High spot, adoption doubled to more than 3 million users in 2020. Well, High spot, the sales enablement platform that helps companies get the most from their customer facing teams, announced soaring growth as companies include, and these are nice companies. I chopped off a lot, the rest of the list, but Aetna, CVS, DocuSign, DuPont, uh, GM, John Deere. And, you know, here's, let me just read this. High spot connected more than 3 million salespeople channel partners, service reps, and customers in modern digital sales experiences last year, representing a 100% increase in the platform usage. That, to me, was the, the, what stood out. What do you think so far? When we look at sales engagement platform, I mean, this isn't surprising, is it? Well, I think the number's quite surprising, but it isn't surprising. So I think we've got to be careful with the numbers because a lot of uh, organizations will tell you how many customers they have. This mm-hmm. uh, high spot is saying they've got 3 million users. So if you're dealing with the enterprise, they might have 300 sales reps or whatever. So I think that's that number it seems shocking because we don't typically talk about, or I, I find I don't typically talk about users, I talk about customers. Um, but yeah, it's still an incredible number, right? Yeah, but you bring up a good point because Zoom was called on the carpet on that one by their uh, uh, stockholders, shareholders, because they basically said they had, in this case, I forgot what the number of users were. They said 10 million users. Yeah, wait a minute. You got 10 million people paying for it? No, 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 no. Not, not, not paying for it. There are people, you know, and then they had to clarify that. So I'm glad you highlighted that. So good point. Great point. Yeah, and, and there's other uh, elements the rest- to this as well. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but that Facebook no, no, have come into trouble with in the past as well of saying so many users, whereas the active user base was much lower as well. Now, Facebook must have a much higher turnover than a, a B2B SaaS organization, I'm sure, with with the user base, because you can just willy-nilly create new accounts. Um, but it would be interesting to know, just for my own perspective, how many active users there are, as opposed to how many people have signed up in the past. Correct. Even that number is still, even if you grab a small percentage of that number and said, let's say 10% of those convert into actual paying users, it's still a big number. The, the trend is there that these platforms are becoming very common, just like Zoom. Oh, I got to share. I, I'm going to go off topic for a second. Okay. I got to share. This is, this is. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm invited to this virtual uh, sales 
forum yesterday, right? And remember a year ago, I don't know where you were with Zoom, but I barely knew how to use Zoom, right? I mean, I knew how to get out, that was it. And so fast forward, everybody knows how to use Zoom. I get on the call, on this virtual call, and I'm telling you, I was one of four, and the other three, they were having problems with their equipment. They didn't know how, you know, they were, they were going through all these issues, and I'm thinking, it's been a year now, folks. We need to kind of up our game here in terms of the virtual space. And I'm thinking about this because it's almost like I could tell that the people on that call were technophobes or Luddites. They didn't want to use the technology. They were hesitant to use it. And I'm telling yeah, you, we know this already. We're going to start using these tools more and more. So it's going to be co more commonplace. But anyway, I wanted to highlight this one for you. It was part of the article, but I wanted to get your thoughts. The remote reality, I guess there was a pun intended in there somewhere, has accelerated the pace of digital transformation and changed the way go-to-market teams engage buyers. According to Gartner, listen to this, 80% of B2B sales will happen digitally through 2025 based on a study called The Future of Sales. Talk to me about that 80%. That seems, I does, is this surprising to you? It has to. So I think there's multiple factors here. I think one factor is that we're living in the SaaS era, right? We've talked about this on This Week in Sales in the past, that a $50,000 CRM installation in your own server cabinet with perhaps someone on site a few days a week to manage it, you know, Clearly, you need someone to come in and, and chat to you about that. You, they need to inspect the place. Perhaps an, a, a, an engineer of some sort needs to come out and look at your infrastructure and all that kind of things. Now, if you can do that in the cloud for $7 per user per month, then it can be done online seamlessly, quickly, and easily. So I feel like that is a factor with a lot of this. Um, uh, I know in medical devices, a lot of um, hospitals are moving to a managed service. So that could be more easily bought online because if they don't like it, they just get rid of it. There's no massive capital outlay that they're stuck with. So there's less risk. So again, that can be done online uh, more seamlessly. And of course, the, the internet is just more ubiquitous than it ever is. I don't buy anything in person. We're, we're in lockdown right now in the UK. I think it's going to go on for another four weeks or so. It's quite open-ended. No one really knows. It doesn't bother me at all. Like It's, it's difficult for socialization and and with Walter, the new dog, I'll, I'll, I'll introduce him in a little bit. It's difficult. There's no puppy classes and, and things like that going on. But mm. other than that, if I need something, I just go on Amazon and buy it. I've just bought a new Mac. So that's arriving tomorrow, next day delivery. There's there's not mm. much I need to buy. I've just, we just changed some of the uh, the business structure. I've been on the accountants. Uh, we use uh, crunch.co.uk. It's an online accountancy. I don't need to go in and see them. They've got their own software and uh, kind of like instant phone support. That, that's, that for me is a decent, and we, we, we're working on some new studio stuff and that's all going to be bought online as well. We might have some people in to rebuild some of the set and, and different things and projects are going on in the background, but there's not much that can't be purchased online. And also, there might be some clarification here of that number of, does that mean that you have someone on site, you've met 17 salespeople and the CFO has been on the phone and you've had a site visit, but it's a credit card transaction which makes this now an online purchase. Because if that's the case, then most of them are going to be like that versus perhaps 10 years ago, there's more wire transfers uh, where people were a bit more nervous of, uh, of purchasing things through a kind of a, a web payment portal. So there's so many elements to this, Victor. I'd have to read the whole study mm -hmm. to suss it out, but the, the number should be 90, 99% really. Okay. All right. That's fair, fair enough. I, I As you were talking, I'm thinking about like uh, one of my customers, Window World where they sell all these windows and they have a virtual staging area. So you're the customer, I'm trying to sell you. I'll just say, well, that's a great question. I don't have the answer. Let me bring on uh, Joe Bob over here. We're in the South, so you give him two names. Joe Bob over here. You bring Joe Bob on and he's at the staging area with all the windows and they use that portal TV where it follows you around and the sale is made right there and then, you know, typically. And so I can see it. I think I think that's a good number. I, I, let's, leave, let's use the Pareto principle on this one and leave it at 80%. But I, but I think it's closer probably to, as you say, upwards of 90 probably. Yeah. What, what, we've never talked about this before, Victor. Hopefully, mm -hmm. as the, the vaccine starts to roll out, we're going to be able to go and, and be maskless and, and hang out with people and go see customers and all that good stuff, right? How much of this, how much of COVID affecting us, everyone, in you know, in the whole entire planet for the past more than 12 months now, how is that going to affect sales culturally, do you think? Do you think that we're going mm. to go in, say you're selling windows, for example, typically you go in, you take the hand, you, you walk them around. Maybe they want to 
I don't know, check the, the locks and the, the, the doors mm-hmm. on the window or whatever. They want to physically touch it. Uh, the, you know, there's, a, there's a tactile element to, to that that might be valuable. Do you think that people are going to still want to do that? Or do you think subconsciously, at least for a little bit, there's going to be a uh, a reluctance to touch things other people have been touching, to shake hands and to even just be stood close to people? Because in the UK, we've been social distancing now for a year, this two metre rule. Um, it's changed, but I think it's two metres now. Mm. Do you think that's going to culturally affect sales, whether we like it or not, even if it's at a subconscious level? That's a good question. And I, I, I'm, we're kind of in a bubble here in Atlanta, Georgia, because we're like rebels, right? <laughs> I mean, I'll go, I'll go into some stores and people won't have masks on. I'll go to, I mean, not even at the door. They're just like, ah, you know, and so, so I'm in a bubble here. And so from my perspective, I think we're going to go – Remember, I said last year the word was pivot. This year it's going to be either blended or hybrid going to be the word of the year. And I think we're going to go to back. I think some people are going to want that option. I think that's the best way to look at it. And I think a lot of people are just going to want, just like they're buying cars online, I think a lot of people say, you know what? Your reputation, for example, Windows is great. So I'm not going to question the quality. We just need to size them and put them in. So let's just buy them. So I think you're going to have that blended approach. That's my my talking about get out of that. Yeah, we're talking about blended approaches. Tell us about Vimeo here and how they're using video marketing. Well, look, so again, video, video, video. The world's leading. Are they really leading the all-in-one video solution? Are you really Vimeo? I don't know. Uh, today launched a suite of tools to help marketers and businesses reach new customers with video to streamline the process of managing communication with customer leads. Vimeo also introduced new and enhanced integration with, this is interesting, HubSpot, MailChimp, Constant Contact, and more. Users can add customized contact forms. I like this part. This is why I highlight this one. Users can now add customizable contact to their for- contact forms to their videos, sync form submissions directly to their preferred email platform, and engage clients with in-video video gifts. I guess a little fun. The power of video to engage software anywhere and anytime is a remarkable tool for compelling marketing campaigns, said Scott Brinker, VP of Platform Ecosystems at HubSpot. Now, first of all, I didn't know there was such a title as a platform ecosystem. There's a you know, platform ecosystem, so that caught my attention. I think, by the way, this is just a natural progression, so there's no big aha here. But I think it's interesting how Vimeo is really investing more in integration. And Vimeo, we're calling it here again on This Week in Sales, will either go public or be bought out. I don't know about That's- that. Because Vimeo has a ton of competition. So Wistia, um, I think Wistia is like the darling of this space of hosting video. Um, so you wouldn't host you wouldn't host a video that you just, it's not a, it's not a YouTube alternative. It's a B2B alternative. We host all our uh, training videos over at salesman.org in the, and our paid premium product in Wistia. Um, and I'm going, to, I'm going to say it, but hopefully it doesn't come back to bite me in the ass. We, we worked with them years ago, a couple of years ago now on the Soapbox product, which does a lot of what you're describing here. Um, and it has integrations with HopeSpot and other places as well. Uh, and so they comped me an account and they've not uncomped me the account. So hopefully they don't because it costs about 10 grand a year to carry on with it. So <laughs> hopefully, they <laughs> hopefully they don't hear it. And if they do, here's a plug for you. Wistia is awesome. Um, but we do use Vimeo as well for some other projects, um, which is more mm-hmm. public facing content that just gets kind of dumped onto the internet as opposed to things that are uh, hosted on our site in like a, a premium environment. But yeah, you're right. Um, as, as to acquisitions, I think there's lots of probably smaller, cheaper startups that can do similar things that would be a better acquisition um, or better potential for acquisition. More, more opportunity for a big brand to add value to it and, and blow up the, um, the the value of it as opposed to buying something that's already more established. But yeah, getting video into CRM, into emails and doing it seamlessly, there's definitely opportunity for one company to rule that space. And I don't think anyone really rules it quite yet. I agree with you. I think if a company's looking for, because I'm thinking acquisition also, if a company's looking for the feature set, they'll probably buy something cheaper than Vimeo. But if they're looking for feature set plus embedded customer base and they want that base, they'll go after Vimeo. So anyway, let us know what you think. By the way, go to thisweekinsales.com. Leave us some feedback. Uh, love to hear from you. We got some, by the way, some people actually send us some stuff this week and we're going to look at that at the end, uh, Will and I. Anyway, I, I, ha- I had to I had to include this one, and I, I and I even put a little note that you might scold me on this one, but I just said I'm going to have a look at this because I keep seeing this phrase VUCA. Have you Wait, heard of VUCA before? I, I've never heard of this. Let's just pause for a second so we can ask the okay. this week in sales audience. 
um, rhetorically, if you're driving your car, listen to this right now. Do you know what V-U-C-A is? Because I've not read this post Uka. purposely. I have no idea what, what I don't know. I know what you're talking about, Victor. Tell us, tell us what, okay. what does it mean? So I kept hearing this phrase and I saw it again. I said, I'm going to bring this phrase up. Uh, it says, emerging from a VUCA world, <laughs> UCA, how sales leaders can set a course for less stress in 2021 by the Berks Group. Understanding how to manage through a VUCA world. I know you want to know what it means. One that is V, volatile, U, uncertain, C, complex, and A, ambiguous, is the subject of this free seminar hosted by the Berks Group. The webinar titled, The Virtual Happy the virtual happy half hour. I hate that name. <laughs> Creating your sales advantage through agility. Just a horrible name. We'll be presented by a special guest, Tim O'Shea, an expert on the VUCA concept. So, and quote, 2020 was defined, was a definite example of VUCA on steroids, O'Shea says. 2021 hopefully will be less turbulent and disruptive, but we can expect it to continue to accelerate and separate the agile from the fragile. <laughs> I just... <laughs> Victor, have you read the book on writing well? I have not. I, so, I, highly I <laughs> so highly recommended book. Um, it's you. You will know all this from just the amount of books that you've written and, and working with publishers and that. But it, it's a good primer on how to write with in the and one of the one of the things that comes across very heavily in the book. Something I took away from it is don't use four words when one word does the job. We don't need VUCA. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Just an uncertain environment explains all of that absolutely fine. We don't need another acronym. Um, it just adds another layer and, and buffer to communication, right? Uh, so on, I'll put it in the show notes of this episode as well over to thisweekinsales.com um, on writing well. It's a great prime if you're starting to create content on LinkedIn. Um, not necessarily if you're writing, uh, you know, it's useful if you're writing books and, and, and longer form things like that. But if you're creating content, if you're social selling, uh, I highly recommend that book. But yeah, is, is that fair to say, Victor, that we could just say a complex environment? We could just say an uncertain yeah. environment. We don't need, don't need another acronym. No, we should do, right? Here's what we should do. We should have a think about this. No, we'll ask the audience. So go to thisweekinsales.com and give us your feedback on this. We should, our audience together, Victor, is pre, is, you know, I, I don't, we're not like, clearly we know um, Gary Vaynerchuk, like millions and millions of subscribers. It's a pretty decent audience that we've got between us. We should see if we can create an acronym. We should start using it. The audience listening to this will know what it is. And we should create something that's so ridiculous and just see if we can bait someone else into saying it. <laughs> so we'll create a meme. So we're gonna, okay, we're going to create a, we're gonna create an acronym meme yeah. is basically what you're saying. We'll, we'll use it on this show and then we'll yeah. see if it spreads. And, and we'll, and we'll it, make it so a, ridiculous and yeah. it's unique. It's it's a it's an inside joke for everyone who for the literally 10, 20, 30,000 people who are listening to this right now. And um, so if you've got an idea of an acronym that we can use, head over to thisweekinsales.com, drop it in a message, drop it in an email, and uh, we'll we'll start just hounding it. I'll start. I will literally use it on the salesman podcast. I'll use it in our content. I'll make it seem like a real thing, and then whoever, whichever sucker starts saying it on the back of. Of, of us kind of promoting it, then um, you're more shame them we go, for just gotcha. being we'll go, gotcha. Yeah. gotcha, gotcha. You know, by the way, I just want to highlight something. I like the Brooks Group. They got a great training yeah. program, very extensive training program. But having said that, having shown respect, is, is, it, is it really possible? Tom O'Shea calls himself an expert on the VUCA concept. And I'm having a hard time with that one. How can you be an expert on volatility, uncertainty, right? What's the other one? I even forgot. Uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. How so can I, you? Be I will play expert? devil's advocate slightly here. I don't know his background. I could Google him in a second. To give him the benefit of that, maybe he is an expert in kind of military operations, or like there's an acronym of like basically when shit hits the fan in um, you know special forces. Maybe he's mm -hmm. an expert in that side of things, which which is true, right? I'm sure. 80% of operations where you send a couple of fellas in to uh, retrieve something or gather intel, maybe things don't go to plan. So I'm sure that, and I'm clearly giving him massive benefit of the doubt here, um, there probably are experts in that. And if you can translate that, the difficulty is translate, translating that into a business environment. But maybe there's something to yeah. that, right? 
I don't know. I, I, what's coming to, <laughs> you were not convinced that mind, at all. <laughs> no, no, no. What's coming to mind is we had a guy, uh, I think it was, I forgot who, who was he under George Bush, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of State or something like that. And during one of the press conferences, he said something that was really interesting. It's kind of a tongue twister, but he goes, when you think about it, he was right. He goes, he goes, when it goes to military operations, going to what you're stating here as his defense, he goes, Rumsfeld said the following. And you got to look this up because it's, it's a great line. He goes, there are known knowns, things you know, known knowns. And then there, there's known unknowns. You know, you know things you don't know. And then he goes, they're unknown unknowns. And it's the unknown unknowns that always basically we can't, you know, predict. So when I think VUCA, I'm thinking of unknowns unknowns. So nobody can know the unknowns because they're unknown. So anyway, I think I'll move on. But you get my point. I get you, but I think the answer to a lot of this kind of stuff uh, from a business perspective and a personal perspective is have some way, money way, in the bank money. and survive. That's, that's, that is how you deal with unknown, unknown knowns, no knowns, no knowns, or no knowns. Just have, be, be be a bit flush so you can just sit back for a few months and let it, let it ride out the wave. By the way, if, if, if Tom O'Shea hears this, let, we just want you to know, we do respect you. No, we, yes. we love the Brooks groups. Uh, we're just having a little fun with you, Beth. That's all. We're having a little fun with you. But anyway, so uh, hybrid, I had to bring this one up also, hybrid strategies and the new face of retail. Uh, and this is what you said earlier. This, this really ties back into people buying online, right? Because he says there, there's four, I guess, four quadrants of buying. He says there's brick and mortar, these two gentlemen, Professor Omar Tulan and Professor Nicolo Pisani. Uh, and by the way, this is out of the UK. So this is your stuff. So one is that there's brick and mortar. You buy physically in the store. Online, you buy there. But then these two phrases came up. And I don't know. It's me, Will, but I just want to be on the leading edge of new terms with everybody. Okay. So this is the third way of buying is called showrooming. Showrooming is where you see it in the store, but you then you buy it online. If you're guilty of that, please raise your hand right now. And the number four is webrooming. And that is you see it online, and then you buy it in store. And my question to you, Will, is, uh, you know, what do you think of this dynamic? Sh should stores continue to really think about this? Because I've done it where I'm in a physical store and I look up on Amazon, right? Oh, is it because you're a, is it because you're a cheapskate? Is that what you're trying to say? You know, I think that's a little harsh, Will. Uh, <laughs> I would say the word frugal would be better. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, pre I appreciate what you're saying, yeah. And, but there's also times where you see something, you know, online and then you say, I need to go touch it. And see it physically. What would be and an so example I of that? Think it's just, uh, I can't think of example an example. Be, I think of a microphone stand. For example, I got a new microphone stand. And it's funny how, you know, I had to like touch it to see it. I saw it online. Then I went over to Guitar Center, which is a place you get instruments. And I saw it. I slapped on a mask. And then I, I literally opened the box, touched it. And I go, okay, I'm going to buy it. Because I couldn't tell the quality based on the reviews. Is that just me? Are you saying that there's something wrong with me, Will? So this isn't a slight, this is an observation, and this is massively mm. um, uh, a broad observation. I know when I go shopping with my with my partner that I can try on a shirt, buy it, and I'm happy and fine. Whereas she needs to walk around the shop, touch absolutely everything, try on 27 shirts, spend the same amount as spend the same amount as me and perhaps uh, enjoys the buying experience a little bit more. So maybe there's an element of, uh, uh, maybe I'm slightly more matter of fact, matter of fact with things. Um, a partner would rather, as, as I said, perhaps enjoy that buying experience. So I don't know if that's a male, female thing. There's probably multiple uh, facets to it all, but I understand what you're saying, especially with like a microphone stand or, um, I don't know, maybe, so for example, an example might be a home hi-fi. So we're doing some uh, decorating at the moment and I need to upgrade our, uh, I don't need to do anything. I want to upgrade to the, just the, the, the shame of my bank account, some new speakers, I'm going to get a new telly and that side of things. So I'll buy a telly on the back of reviews, but I want to go and hear speakers in a showroom, in a, in a controlled environment. Because that is more subjective than a, a telly is more a, 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 a good reference television 
will display an image in the exact way that a director wants it to be displayed. There are modes for, like I've just bought a new monitor that I'm using right now. Um, it's color accurate. It's got an sRGB mode. It's got an Adobe uh, color range mode, and it does what it's, it, it displays accurate colors. Whereas a speaker is colored. Uh, that's that's confusing. A speaker has, uh, it can be higher, which can be a little bit fatiguing, but can sound really nice in short periods, or it can be more relaxed. And so it doesn't strain your, it literally doesn't strain your ears and you can watch a whole film on it and it can be more subtle over time. So I'm, I'm agreeing with what you're saying, I guess, of I would, I would perhaps web room a speaker. I'd look at online, I'd, I'd narrow it down to one or two pairs and I'd want to go to a showroom and experience them and probably buy them then or there. But then I might showroom a television of, I would go make sure it doesn't look like it's not cheap, crappy plastic. It's difficult to see in photos, mm -hmm. but then I'd just buy it probably from John Lewis or somewhere in the UK. I'd just buy it online and get it delivered. Save me trying to fit it in my car. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting from a, and again, this is a retail uh, article, but I think it's interesting I'm wondering if retail companies are really thinking about this, like, you know, this dynamic, like we all check prices, right? If we're, we're actually showrooming, we're going to check prices. And I'm wondering if there's some type of technology using uh, some IOT devices that as soon as I log on to check prices while I'm in the store, it maybe drops in a coupon and the Wi-Fi or something. I don't know. I'm just trying to think, how creative can we be? How creative can stores be to capture that so people don't leave or buy it online? Yeah, I guess some of it though, how price sensitive are you really? Like would, what, you say you're buying a telly, what difference in price? Because let's say we can get it in your car and you're excited to pick it up the same day. How much of a price difference would it have to be for you to wait the next day to get it delivered uh, versus just buy it there and then? And that would depend, right? I mean, you know, we're not all millionaires like Will is. <laughs> and so we have- we Aspiring millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> But, but but it really does depend. I, but you're absolutely right. Like I just bought a couple of things and I just needed it like tomorrow, you know, and I'm not going to, and I just said, I got to get it. And so it really depends on the desire. But anyway. Yeah. The, the reason I ask is I'm not very price sensitive at all. I will, I'll spend an extra 50 quid on something. I just bought a new Mac uh, mini and I spent, it was like another 50 quid because I could get it from a place that could give it, deliver it tomorrow. Whereas Apple was a bit cheaper, but they would deliver it in a week from now. Especially with business purchases, yeah. I guess as well. I, like yeah. I need it now because something else is broken, so I'm I'm more willing to spend that little bit extra money. But I guess we're we might be diving into yeah. the weeds to him uh, with with the retail side of things. But but I, but I should highlight something when it comes to pricing and pricing psychology, and they've shown this. When you buy a thirty thousand dollar car, and I want to add a five hundred dollar item, we're like, ah, throw it in. That as relative to the higher price is not a big deal. But yet you'll see something for fifteen dollars. In one location, and you know you saw it over there for ten dollars, and you'll drive. You, you know? will. I won't because I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Are you, are you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is a study that was done. People will drive, and probably Victor would drive. I would not. People would drive just to save that five dollars, and the the inconsistency there, where you would just drop in another five hundred thousand when you buy a bigger item, but a small item, you'll drive across town just to save five or ten bucks. The insanity of that is interesting. So anyway, yeah. On and, that and, note, we beat I'm, price retail. Down yeah, and, and just to just to translate that to B two B for a second, I'm sure there are studies. I'm sure there's lots of data we could look it up, and I'll see if I can put something in the show notes on uh, what needs to happen for someone to pay more in B two B for convenience. So if there's a SaaS product that is X a month more expensive versus a in, uh, in physical installation that is probably a better product or better uh, supported, but someone has to come and visit. Maybe people will get the less, uh, maybe people would pay, B2B buyers would buy a less sophisticated product just because they don't have to faff around and, and deal with anyone. I, I agree with that. What was that word you just used? The faff around? Faff. You, you what? <laughs> this is you the, the Victor around. Antonio uh, call out of British uh, yeah. vernacular of yeah. the week. I just, I'm trying to understand by the way, you said faff. How do you spell that? I don't think, yeah, it's not, I don't think it's a real word, but yeah, if I was to faff around, it means, or if I was to fanny around, it's just, I'm wasting time, I'm procrastinating. Okay, faff, I got that one, I'm just <laughs> learning. And by the way, that there is a psychological phrase, I just remember what it's called, it's called a JND, which is a just noticeable difference. And a just noticeable difference happens at 5% of the actual price, that people start to notice a price differentiation, so... Just me. It's just not me. It's everybody else is thinking this way. Well, except you, of course. You're special. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> one way of putting it. Next up, we're coming into speaking um, of money. Speaking <laughs> of money, we're coming into culture corner here. So I read this. 
I read the title of this article and I was like, this could be absolutely fascinating. This is, I'm genuinely intrigued. And I'm going to cite this one because we've not cited any of these articles at all for the whole of the show. Um, so this is from bbc.co.uk. Everything else that we talked about will be available in the show notes over at thisweekinsale.com. The title of the article is CEO Secrets, quote, we tried paying everyone the same salary, full stop. It failed, end quote. Of course it friggin' failed, geniuses. Now, I know you've got something to just oppose some of this in a second. But again, a quote from the article. We realise that we had to pay attention to market forces, says Calvin, who's the CEO of the organisation that tried this. Quote again, sometimes traditional practices are there for a reason. So, Victor, is it possible to pay? Is it possible to have an effective sales team when everyone gets paid the same? I appreciate the answer might be a gray area in the middle. If we've got one side, everyone gets paid the same. If we've got the other, we've got this boiler room, doggy dog, ag- aggressive, like, you know, 80s Wall Street stereotype. Is it effective if, clearly that's somewhat effective, but might be self-destructive over time. But could it be effective to pay all salespeople on the team the same salary, the same bonuses, even if there's a difference in performance between those individuals? I think what's what's making this a very gray area, by the way, I'm a full capitalist, right? So I'm like, you know, you know, individual pay what you want. If you're working, you get more. That's, you know, I don't believe in this whole, you know, let's make everybody equal on a pay scale. It doesn't work for you. From a philosophy standpoint, I am with this 100%. I'm a capitalist, right? But what's interesting now is that as we step back from this, is that a sale today is not made in many cases by one salesperson. So let me, let me just roll out the argument here, and we're going to get a lot of pushback. By the way, give us your feedback, thisweekinsales.com. And that is, if a person sells, when I used to sell back in the day, I know that was my sale. I closed it. I bid it. I closed it. I wine dined the whole bit. It was mine. And then everybody supported me on the back end, right? Today, what we're seeing is that there's so many touch points coming into a company that sometimes the salesperson is, I, I don't want to say the last to know about the deal, but is you know, it's already been a market qualified lead. It's gone through a process and bam, it lands. And so does anybody else deserve credit for that nurturing of that sale? I think that's where the real gray area comes in. But if it's a scenario where, you know, you you eat what you kill, I'm with you on that. You eat what you kill. I earned it. I got it. It's mine. But I think it's becoming a little more gray because of the many people who are touching the sale before it closes. So my answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. I'm being very genuine about that. Yeah, what I see happening in a few organizations that I've had these conversations with is um, the will form a silo. So there might be a customer service person, a SDR, an account manager, and maybe some kind of support from marketing or operations or a product manager, something like that. And as a silo, they get commissions based on deals getting closed across the team. Now, in theory, this is great. If you've got a great team behind you, fantastic. But if you, if one link of the chain is a moron and you can't change teams and they're dragging you down, then I know that would affect my, um, not mental health, but it, it, it might eventually affect my mental health, but it would affect my um, uh, morale in the organization. It would affect my, it would affect what I felt, was, what my experience of a company culture, if I was constantly let down by someone else. And that affected my ability to buy stuff or to, you know, invest or whatever. Uh, whatever the focus was. So I guess in a, an ideal world, if you could hire the best people, that silo effect and a team target would work perfectly. But in reality, who knows? It probably doesn't. <clears throat> I, th- I think you're right. I mean, it's like, again, this is a tough one, but you, you're highlighting something that if there is a weak link and you have no control over getting rid of that weak link, but yet you've worked really hard on a sale, that's not fair to you as a salesperson. And then maybe you did put in more of the work. Maybe the real answer comes in that we need to kind of go back and look at compensation structures and how we put them together that would make it equitable for everybody in such a way that, you know, if you did put in the extra work, you did do all the hunting, then you get extra credit. So maybe it's a little more complex, but I think it's an interesting topic as I guess as salespeople now become more absorbed under the marketing umbrella, right, that they become more equitable in how they pay out people. You've said that a few times, Victor, uh, of salespeople have been absorbed into marketing. Is it an absorption into marketing or, I'm asking for clarity just out of my own interest as well, or is it a sales and marketing coming together to form a unit, if that makes sense? Is there going to be a a VP of marketing that controls sales 
Or will there be a VP of, and I hate this term, but smarketing that covers both sales and marketing? I think it'll fall under, it's, it's either going to, the cop-out answer is, it's. I think there should be a sales operation role. Sure. You know okay. what I mean? Or what we could call it, you know, a sales operation role. And maybe the sales operation role now takes over marketing. But the lead dog here is marketing because of all the touch points. Let's go back to our original comments that if 80% of these purchases are being done digitally online without, I mean, that tells you everything you need to know. Marketing is in leading now. And so I think it's really interesting how the compensation plans will now be broken out and how much credit should a salesperson get for a sale. But I do agree with you that uh, I think everybody should have a, maybe this is another way, let's approach it this way, Will. You know that whole Maslow's hierarchy, which is what my article is gonna go talk about, the juxtaposition of what you just stated. So Will just talked about this guy, Calvin, uh, who basically can't sell. Uh, and feels like he wants to get compensated. I'm just joking about the guy. I'm, not, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. Well, let, let me so, just, sorry, can I just inject one thing here? Because this will be relevant for the, the headline of your article. So Calvin, um, again, the article's over. If you want to read this for yourself, because I feel like we're bashing him slightly. But he paid everyone £36,000 a year, which is not, you can live on it. Lots of people live on it. I think the average salary in the UK is £33,000. But if you go into your article now, Victor, I think that frames up some of the difference here, perhaps. That's a good point. So so this gentleman by the name of Dan Price. Now, here's here's a backstory. I thought I'd, I'd hold this back for you. So the boss who put everyone on a 70K salary. Now, I think the average salary, I haven't looked at it, but I think it's probably in the 27, 28. You know, so this is almost double what the average here is in the U.S. So I have to go. I may be off on the number if I'm off. Leave it into this week's uh, at sales.com. So he gave everybody $70,000. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is 2015. Well, I met Dan Price when I worked on my show, my TV show, Life or Debt. He's actually in one of the episodes. So by the way, if you haven't heard, I had a reality show called Life or Debt. And in one of the episodes, we're working with a family. I think it's episode number four. We're working with a family in Miami, a Cuban family. And we bought in Dan Price to help us with because he does credit card transaction point of sales. We brought him in to kind of help this restaurant with his expertise. And that was the first time I heard of this guy. And when I heard this $70,000, everybody gets it. I'm like, what a socialist idea for a capitalistic <laughs> system, right? That's what I was thinking. And so what's interesting is that, you know, I looked him up after I read your snippet. I said, well, let me get an update. Now, this, is, this article is dated February of 2020. Uh, I, but this is not BBC UK. This is BBC.com, which I assume is here. Here's the following. In 2015, the boss of a card payments company, Dan Price in Seattle, introduced a $70,000 minimum salary for all of his 120 staff and personally took a pay cut of $1 million. Five years later, he's still on the minimum salary and says the gamble has paid off. And again, the article is on the BBC a website. And I think it's an interesting thing because it as of a year ago, I read the article. Apparently, he's still doing well, and the business has boomed. I, sh I should have wrote, I, and I copied the rest of it. But anyway, they've grown dramatically in that time. Interesting thing is, a few people did leave because they thought it was unfair that they were being equally compensated for doing more work. So interesting, On in this case, it's working. There were a couple, one or two other companies that did it, not as aggressively as he did, but only one or two other companies probably picked up on it. But so is the jury still out, Will? Uh, I think it's fair to say, just to look at the notes here, Victor, he has 120 staff. So it's not like it's him in an office with five of his mates, uh, you know, messing around and um, adding equity to the business rather than paying himself a million dollars a year. That's, that's a medium-sized organization, right? He might have multiple offices of 120 people. So he's killing it, he's crushing it. Now, I'm, I'm on the same side as you. I don't think I'm... I'm pretty. I'm a capitalist, but I think we we could probably discuss politics off a, on a or a different a different show, and there might be some slight differences in in what we both uh, agree and aspire towards in that. But I don't think I could run. Let me. I'll frame it up this way: If I earn X thousand dollars a year as the managing director of um, Upgraded Media Limited, the the business that's uh, producing this week in sales and and the other content we do over at Salesman.org, and I had a sales rep who brought in 10 million quid a year, I would pay him 10, 20%, whatever was appropriate of that money. And I would be I would be absolutely over the moon 
if he was earning five mm-hmm. times more than what I was. Because I'm not here for, as a business owner, I'm not here for a salary. I'm here for growth within the organization. I'm here to build a, a culture for people who want to just work their asses off and crush it. And I'm happy to take, it's almost my, and again, this is subjective, um, and this is an opinion, but I feel it's my obligation to look after everyone in the team and then I eat at the end of it. Because I'm going to win if the company does grow. In 10 years' time, I'll win because it'll be acquired or there'll be big deals that come along that I can earn from on the back of it. So um, I don't know where I'm going with this, Victor. No, no, I, I think it's a good point. You know, Simon Sinek uh, wrote a book called Leaders Eat Last, right? Yeah. And you're kind of saying the same thing. I used to always tell managers, I said, your salespeople should be making more money than you because they're hunting. They're out there. So the more money they make, they may be making more than you, but your business unit is growing, and that's what you're looking for. With this, with this, with this, I guess, idea, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I personally have cognitive dissonance with this thing. It's just like my brain can't line up with everybody gets paid the same, especially when I know that not everybody's going to put an equal amount of work in. But if you're trying to create an environment, I, I, I don't want to say it's a kumbaya environment, but it kind of is, where we all get along, everybody's happy. But I'm wondering if you were to scratch the surface of this thing for his company, would you find some blemishes? You know, because everybody sees the articles, it's great, let's do it. But if it was that positive, why isn't everybody adopting it if it's such a great idea? Sure. So I, think I, I, I will say this, right? I don't, I don't know this chap. I have read about him in the past. Um, he's got a bunch of articles over at techcrunch.com um, that covers like startups and, and, and that kind of world, Silicon Valley world. They've wrote about him in the past. Now, what I will say is if this is a lifestyle business for Dan, if he's not pursuing massive growth at all costs, and you know, I don't either, but I, I, I'm pursuing growth, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm not willing to take on outside investments or anything like that to make it happen. If he's making enough a year, if he's happy and comfortable on 70 grand a year, and he can build that for his team, and perhaps the cash accounts of the company just gets bigger and bigger every year because the revenue outstrips the 70 grand that everyone's on, and everyone's happy, then maybe it is uh, maybe it is a nice medium-sized business to run, and you run it for ten years, you retire, and you, you're done and dusted. So maybe there's we would have to know the motivations behind some of it. And I know um, I'm, I'm mixing with more people now who, just as I grow my business and, and that side of things, that do run lifestyle businesses that have, have worked their ass off for ten years, hired a little team, and they just get all the fun management side of, of things. They get to experiment with different projects and the, the the marketing and the business flywheel is now moving at such a such a pace that they don't need to you know, pay crazy amounts for the best salespeople a decent salesperson would do. So maybe there's an element of that too. I agree. As well. I've, having met him, know him, first of all, genuine person, super nice guy. And I think, I think to him it's about, you know, Great. It's, you know, when you made money, it's great. But I think he it's a lifestyle choice. And I think he's he wants that environment. I think he wants to actually enjoy going to work and not feel the resentment when he walks through the door while he's driving his Lamborghini. You know what I mean? So he's very empathetic. And, you know, he's the real deal when it comes to that. And I've met him. He's like a super nice guy. So I think you said it well. It's a lifestyle choice and how he chooses to grow his business. And it's a beautiful thing, man. It's, if it's working for him, God bless you. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, because I know there are, there are studies, and we'll wrap up with this point perhaps, and we'll get into some of the uh, the submissions that we've had over at thisweekinsales.com. Uh, this now, the numbers will have changed because this study was done years ago, maybe even decades ago. I think the book is called Your Money or Your Life. Uh, you may have come across it. Um, a lot of the audience probably will have as well. I don't think so. Oh, so, uh, well, this is a topic for another time because this is a massive subject. The, it was a bunch of uh, people researching how to basically, um, how to put it, they wanted to offer people financial programs. And so they were trying to search for millionaires in America uh, that they could sell financial services to, financial products to. Now, what they found, which then converted, the turned the business on its head and changed the direction of their company, was that most millionaires in America are small business owners who drive pickup trucks, who live in normal houses, who are paid off the mortgages, and the people who they thought and assumed they would be able to sell financial services to, doctors, lawyers, people like that, and you, you, you've got it spot on when you talk about a Lamborghini coming to the office. They, uh, so my partner's a doctor, and I, I feel like there's sometimes pressure for her to do this, but she's dead level-headed, so she doesn't fall into it, she should take the bait. But I know a bunch of her mates and colleagues, they all drive nice cars, 
Uh, they're all, you know, leasing cars, financing cars, getting massive houses because they're like, well, I'm a doctor. I need to show up and my patients need to see the fact that I'm successful, that there's this going on and that I'm not some kind of schmuck. And like my partner's got a brand new car, so I'm not saying that we we're driving because um, I know you've got quite an old car. You obviously just not fussed on it, right? It's not it's not a value add to your life. So what's the point in wasting? Because a new car is a waste of money. No, no matter how anyone kind of tries to throw it up. Um, but I see a lot of her friends buying houses they can't afford, uh, buying cars they can't afford to keep up appearances. And that book, uh, Your Money or Your Life, uh, talks about the research that they found. And they found that most millionaires in America, up to I think like two or three million uh, in net assets, uh, I think it's like liquid net, net assets, are small business owners who drive pickup trucks, who dress normal, and th- there's 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 value in doing that. So um, I was going to go somewhere with that, Victor, but I, I, like that book is highly recommended for anyone, especially salespeople, especially young salespeople who are just starting to earn that little bit of cash. And you just go waste mm-hmm. it on crap, like what I did as well. Like I don't know about yourself, but I, I did the same thing. I, yeah, a lot I of my colleagues the, I bought the car. buy crap. <laughs> I bought the car. I shouldn't have bought. By the way, the book I remember that basically touches on that subject here in the U.S. is called "The Millionaire Next Door." Yeah, and it talks about the same thing. He drives an F one hundred and fifty, wears jeans, you know, very casual, nothing opulent. But there is a lesson there that let, let's hit this one really hard because you just pointed out. I think it's good that you said it. Is that too often we get caught up in that money trap? Right. You got to keep up appearances. And if you're young and you're just jumping into business, you get the new car, you buy the house you can't afford, you buy all this stuff and you're just your house rich, money poor type of thing. And again, a lot of this stuff doesn't matter. And not, too many people rationalize this. Well, I need to show up because I'm a doctor. I need to have that Lamborghini, that nice house. No, you don't. As you get older, you get wiser about this stuff. So we're trying to help you out. Listen to us. You don't need to buy the stuff. Yeah, and where I was going with this now, it comes to mind, and it might be actually the millionaire next door that some of the data come from uh, as well. I, I, in fact, it might have. Do you know what? Uh, no, I've got, there's another book called, it's behind me, called Mind Over Money, which is a more modern twist on, on some of the things. So I'll put all of these in the show notes for everyone who, uh, anyone who wants to check them out. Um, so the study, I think it was, it might actually be the millionaire next door the study came from. It said that after $70,000, the amount of happiness that you get per next $10,000 starts to uh, become less large. So up to 70, and it's it's Maslow's hierarchy, right? Once you get to $70,000, mm-hmm. most of your needs are met. You've got a roof over your head. You can provide for your family. You can you know safely afford a family. You can probably put a little bit away each month. You can invest whatever it is. Um, so there's a massive race to that number. But once you get there, you get a, a, an element of diminishing return. So if you earn $140,000, you're not twice as happy as you are at 70000 uh, And I think the data was somewhat conclusive on some of this. And I know from my perspective, I earn, you know, say I earn 100 grand. Well, if I earn 200, I'm just buying the same shit, but better. I'm not getting, yeah, yeah. I'm not betting, I'm not getting more stuff. I'm just getting the same stuff. The car's got slightly more lever inside it. It's, you know, it doesn't change That's the world it. that much, right? I agree with you. I agree with you. I think, by the way, in the article, they, uh, uh, Dan Price mentioned, I think the number should be more like 75,000 now as a minimum, just as a footnote. Cool. All right, then. Well, we've had a few submissions over on, on the form on This Week in Sales. One from Challenger. So I, I know you're a fan. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, it did, but I know I'm a fan. I think pretty sure you're a fan of the Challenger uh, and books and, and what they're doing. And so we have a message from Jenna who says, last week, Challenger announced the hiring of Andy Harris as their new CEO. Besides the obvious storyline that a female CEO is taking charge of a B2B sales business in an industry where women hold less than one third of the jobs. Um, and then there's other things going on behind the, behind the scenes here of uh, connecting us with Andy. But I wanted to give out uh, a shout out to Jenna and uh, congratulations to Andy for the new the new role, the new job of CEO over at Challenger. Big shoes to fill there, I'm sure. I mean, it's a great company. I love the Challenger sale, uh, the Challenger customer, another great book. Uh, I, I know there's another third one. I think the uh, the effortless experience is another book that's in that series, and great content. So, Andy Harris, congratulations! You think they'll call her Handy Andy? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> she she better make she better grow the business. She goes, yeah, she was handy. Andy is handy. Let's go. Let's grow this business. So, but good luck to her. I mean, I, th- I think that's a I think that's a great position. By the way, I think uh, she's going to have fun with that position and grow the business. Uh, so cool. Uh, I found this. We got this as a submission. You got a copy of this as well. Last week, Will, we talked about how uh, I think there was a study by Gardner that talked about how people are preferring, you know, 
they're getting rid of their, uh, I guess, mobile apps because everybody's using SMS messaging, uh, WhatsApp, WeChat, Facebook, and so forth. And we said, mostly me, I said, I'm, I was the one that kind of put my foot in my mouth when I said, well, why would I want to use those mediums if I can't get that content into a CRM to analyze with my AI? Then my man, Luke Glenn, from a company called, I think it's Imi Mobile, spelled I-M-I mobile.com, said the following. Hey, Victor and Will, I was listening to the recent salesman podcast with you both, and you were discussing recent industry announcements such as Apple launching, virtual sales assistant, Salesforce, LinkedIn, blah, blah, blah. Nice idea about launching a startup to track subscription plans. Happy face. Always, anyway, the reason for my email is that Victor mentions, he just kind of throws it right at me, like <laughs> Victor mentioned, not, not Will. Will's out, Will's out of this. Will's got nothing to do with this. Victor mentioned Gartner's prediction about consumers preferring messaging, as I just mentioned, uh, what, uh, as far as instead of the brand's own app for customer uh, service by 2025. Well, it's already happening, and the space is called conversational AI or conversational commerce, and it's exploding. That part I knew. But your personal concern, this part I didn't know, was how the brand would pull the relevant info out of these conversation threads into the CRM. Fair point, he says. However, brands like ours, nice promo piece, that specialize in conversational technology, have a cloud platform, have a cloud platform that does this. So if you're a consumer and you're using WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, SMS, then the whole conversation can, can will, be stored in a CRM. I rest my case. And that is from Luke Glenn, strategic account director who listens to This Week in Sales. Thank you, Luke, for that. I want to give Luke a shout out here. He's just had his company mentioned in a positive light and himself mm -hmm. from a personal branding perspective. He could easily clip this bit of footage um, and, and stick it on his LinkedIn profile, something like that, by just listening to industry content, right? If if you work in medical devices, there'll be medical device podcasts and uh, publications that you should be tuning into, right? If you're, if you're selling camera equipment, there'll be similar industry publications there. He's just had a shout out. He's had his brand mentioned, the organization he works for, is uh, is is basically getting publicity here in front of tens and tens of thousands of his peers by just sending an email. How incredible is that? And first of all, that's incredible. And on top of that, the cherry on top, he made Victor E. Crow. Like, <laughs> yeah. <"He> made... <laughs> I, I was coming to that. That was the most important bit for sure. <laughs> Victor, we have that. But but this is good stuff. I, I think this is a reason why we do this show, Will, because there's certain things we don't know. So when somebody corrects us, we don't have a problem with it. We just want to, you know, share that. So thank you for that, Luke. And you're absolutely right. Just because you took the time. So thank you for that. Yep. And I want to encourage everyone listening to this right now. Again, tens of thousands of you who are listening to This Week in Sales to go to thisweekinsales.com. And please, please, I'm, I'm almost begging you, prove Victor wrong at every moment you possibly can. Because it, it, yeah. that, that is the highlights of the show right there for me. Victor. I mean, I, I picked on a lot of people in this show. <laughs> I mean, I, I, let me see. Uh, so I'm sure that uh, Andy Harris will probably send something from the Challenger sale. She'll probably give you something on that. Uh, the folks, who else did I pick? Uh, Dan Price is definitely going to chime in when he hears about this. He said, but I did put it in a positive light, the whole 70,000. Definitely going to hear from O'Shea, Mr. Vuka. I'm going to call him Mr. Vuka. That's what I think <laughs> I'm going to do. Mr. Vuka. Yeah, I'm definitely going to hear from him. Uh, and again, I love the Brooks Group, so just joking. Amazing stuff. Well, let's wrap up the show. Let me go and grab the new member of the newest team member of Salesman.org. Come on, Walter. Oh, Who is oh. this? Who's oh. that? Uh, oh. That's a, uh, oh, Walter's awesome. Look at that face. That's a point of right there. He's, nice he's, the, he's just been that, asleep, haven't you? So you're a bit tired. Oh, he's a, Now, how many months is he? Walter oh. is uh, nine weeks old. So uh, he, we picked him up a week ago, and uh, he's just he's not usually this quiet and chill. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a big yawn. There it is. Like, why'd you wake me up? Dad, why'd you wake me up? <laughs> Say hello. Very cute. Very cute. There we go. Right. Let's put you away, and then we can wrap up wrap up this show. We're leaving Victor, aren't we? We're leaving Victor hanging here. But yeah, there we go, everyone. That is there's Walter, the the new office dog, newest team member of Salesman.org, and and by extension, this week in sales. Yeah. Now, what type of dog is it? He is a golden retriever. He is a golden retriever. Okay. He looks beautiful. I love that coat. That color. Love that mm -hmm. color. 
it was uh, it's, it's a British thing to have lighter golden retrievers. So in the US, they tend to be a lot darker. Now there is a there's an American golden and there's a British golden, and it's somewhat subjective as to what well, I'm, I'm slightly out of breath as I sit here, having to run up and down the stairs. Um, it's like it's slightly subjective as to what is what and which is what. But Walter's from a line of working goldens um, of gun dogs, and they tend to be darker, uh, more lean, and athletic looking. So. Uh, so yeah, so he will be, when he's older, probably pretty dark um, as opposed to a lighter cream color. Oh, beautiful dog, man. Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> Good stuff. Congratulations. Right. Well, uh, should we wrap up the show there, Victor? Anything else we need to add? Nothing. That's it. We're done. Let's wrap it up. Good, man. Well, that was Vic D'Antonio, complete sales legend. My name is Will Barron, the other half this week in sales. Uh, you can contact us. You can submit any tips, any industry news. You can correct Victor. Please do anything you think you can correct him on over at thisweekinsales.com. And with that, we'll speak with you again uh, next week on This Week in Sales.